Lord, we thank you for your word read this morning. We pray that you bless it to our souls. Uh, we pray that you feed us this morning, and we pray that you speak to us. And we pray that as we receive this message, you not only be something new uh, for us to learn, but you would be something that actually changed the way we live our lives. And we pray that uh, all glory be to Christ as we conform ourselves to his image through the power of his word. We pray in his name. My topic for this morning is the greatest symbol, the greatest symbol in the history of the universe. The greatest symbol that ever existed and that ever will exist in history. And I believe, I hope that you would agree with me, it is the cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we love the cross. We have the cross hung in our houses on the wall. Uh, we carry in some necklaces and we wear it in different ways. Uh, we do different things and, and we're proud of, of the cross. It's, it's the symbol we have of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love Christ. We've been saved by Christ. And the cross now, not only not, not just the crucifix, but, but the cross, the empty cross, is what represents to us uh, what Christ did for us, his love for us, as uh, he came into the world and died for sinners like you and I. Uh, yet, this symbol, uh, as proud as we may be as Christians of what, is, what it means to us, is actually a really weird symbol when you go back to how we started and the original context of the cross. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, says something really interesting about the cross. He says that if we go back to the first century, the idea of one person carrying the cross as a necklace or, or putting it in his wall would be if, as today, you put a picture of this cloud uh, on, on the wall, and it's a cloud that represents what the, the bomb, the atomic bomb, did in Hiroshima. Uh, it'd be something similar to that, something that to our society would be considered a greater, a great destruction, something shameful that, that we're not proud of talking about, and we look back and, and, and we're ashamed of that. That's the idea of the cross. The cross in the first century was as uh, the same type of punishment that we do to our criminals today. When we take him to the electric chair, or um, maybe uh, the lethal injection that we use to for capital punishment to the serial killer or the rapist in our society, that's what the cross uh, symbolized to people in the first century. And that's what I, I want to discuss with you this morning: is talk about the cross. Why is the cross so shameful to? The Greek. What is the offense that comes with the cross? And what is so offensive to that, to about the cross of the Jew as well? Uh, I want us to look at these things this morning as Paul addresses those issues with the Corinthians. But first, let me explain even the background to all that. Why is in the first place Paul coming to the Corinthians and talking about the cross? Well, if you go back to the verses before, you notice that there's an issue in the church of Corinth. And that it makes sense that this issue was taking place there because Corinth was uh, a Greek city and known for its love for philosophy. Uh, the very word philosophy, which is a combination of two words, you have the word phileo, which is the word to love, and then you have the word sophia, so wisdom, and the love of wisdom. 
And the Greeks were known for that. They loved wisdom. They loved to look at the world to understand patterns in life and see how people behaved and, and discover the truth, uh, if, if we can call it a truth or the truth. But they were the ones who had the greater wisdom according to their understanding. So Paul here is writing to the Corinthians and he's writing to them during his third missionary journey. If you go back to the book of Acts, this church in Corinth was founded in Acts 18, and Paul gets to Corinth right after his trip and his visit to Athens in Acts 17. Very well-known pastor. Paul goes to the Areopagus, and he's speaking to Epicureans and, and Stoic philosophers. He's in the center of the world, and there's so many lessons we can learn just from that passage where Paul comes to Athens, the, the Areopagus, the place where the most important people of the world would be, all the smart, all the, the, the intellectuals. And uh, we, we see that a little bit of the worldview shock that happens between the Christian and the unbeliever where for the whole world, this is the greatest place it could be. Here's where the scholars are found. And to Paul, he says, I've never seen, I've never seen so much idolatry in my whole life. And he's just astounded by, by what he sees. And he has to preach the gospel because he realized how lost these people are. Among all the people of the world, this is the biggest nonsense he's ever seen. There's even a, 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 a worship place for the unknown God. What are these people thinking? This God is not worshipped by human hands. That's not how we approach God. And he gives his whole speech in the Areopagus. So after that, it makes sense then that as he comes to Corinth, Paul, uh, it's clear to him this, the power of the simplicity of the gospel. It's not human wisdom. It's not eloquence, it's not all of these things that the Greeks treasure so much. Aristotle, uh, Socrates, they talk so much about rhetoric and, and, and being good speakers and convincing people and arguing and winning people with their logic. And Paul is saying, the gospel is simple. The logic of man is corrupted and it only leads you to idolatry. Where here is where the wisdom of God realizes it is on the cross of Jesus Christ. The simplicity of God, man, uh, taking upon himself the sins of the world on the cross. So Paul, uh, in Acts 18, founds the church in Corinth, and now he's writing to those people who are, of course, very influenced by, by philosophy. And Paul starts his letter then addressing some of these issues as they're discussing baptism. And you say, how, how are these things related? Well, you can tell here that even though these people are saved, they're saved, but they're living their lives according to worldly philosophy. The contrast, if you look at verse 17, you have two words here in the ESV, the version we're reading. They're translated different words, but in Greek it's the same word. You have the word words in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom. The word here is the word logos, logic, matter, uh, thinking, words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. But the message, and the same word here, the logos of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. So the contrast here that Paul is making is there are two ways of thinking uh, in this world. You can split everyone in your life in two categories. Those who think according to the cross of Jesus Christ, and those who think according to the way the world thinks, rejecting the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying to these people, you have been saved, you have been rescued from your sins, but you're still not living a life consistent 
to the worldview you have, and that's what we call to renew our minds in Romans 12. Live as a living sacrifice and study the Word of God so that we can live consistently to the gospel that saves us. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, same book, he will say, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, so these people are saved, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Why am I saying all this? When we think sometimes of the foolishness of the cross, of, of people who look at the cross and find foolishness in it, they don't see the wisdom, or the group that sees wisdom, this is not a one-time decision in, 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 your, in your life. It's not like you make that one decision to love Christ and now we don't have to worry about it anymore. But we have to, day after day, renew our minds so that we can live, not according to worldly standards, but according to the wisdom of the cross. And that's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do, is to renew their minds. And that's what I'm for you this morning, for me as well, that we would see if there's any mistake, any fault in the way we're living our lives today, and if we are living by the wisdom of the cross or the wisdom of the world. So... Paul here uh, presents these people who are struggling with several issues. They, the princes were struggling with problems of um, um, the Lord's Supper. They're struggling with problems of how to do worship. And the main problem they have with, maybe is how to deal with all the wickedness that they have in the city of Corinth. The city of, city of Corinth was known as a, as, as, as a good spot for people who are traveling and visitors from all over the world. And the city was known for being able to give pleasures to these people, offer them all the good things they could enjoy in this world. So the, the church in Corinth was struggling, how do we deal with this? Do we get closer to these people and try to influence them as we relate to them? Or we, come, or we go on the other extreme and, and set ourselves aside so that through our holiness we can be an example to them? And these are struggles that we still have today. How much should we get involved in the culture? Or not, and these are the things that Paul is addressing here. But he continues uh, saying that this difference between the two is all a matter of what you see in the cross. The way you live your life is a matter of, comes down to how you see the cross of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, Paul expands a little more on this, saying that when we look at the cross, everyone sees the same thing. In the same way that when we look at the world and nature, every single person, everyone in your life, is experience similar things. We experience pain and suffering. We experience good joys in life, families and good food. But the difference is how we interpret all those things. And Paul uh, says in Romans chapter 1, starting verse 8, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their righteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For without they, uh, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So you see here, the same thing Paul is addressing here this morning is that as we look at the same thing, as we look at the cross, for one person, for one group, is foolishness. For the other group, it is wisdom. As we look at the glory of God revealing creation, for one group, it takes them to a place of worshiping created things. Where for the other group, who had its life, our, uh, us who have been enlightened by the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see the glory of Christ, uh, the creator of all things. So let's look at the two groups that Paul mentions here uh, in verse 22. He mentions the Jews and he mentions the Greeks. Verse 22. Jews, Jews demand, demand signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why is the message of the cross such an offense to the Jews? Let me give you two reasons. First, they were looking for a triumphant Messiah. They were looking for the one who was going to come and deliver them from the oppression of the Romans, the political issues that they were having. And we see that several times through Jesus' ministry when people would come to him and say, we want to make you king. We want you to be our leader and let's go and rebel against the government and make sure that we're, we're, we're being freed from their oppression. And Jesus always had to remind them, this, my kingdom is not of this earth. It's, it's not a political kingdom, but it's an eternal kingdom of heaven. My, my, my goal here is greater than what you think. And even John the Baptist, who was the greater uh, until the time of Jesus, he himself couldn't understand that. And when he's in jail, he later on uh, questions Jesus, why, why are you doing all this? What are we going to deliver us from the kingdom? And he couldn't see, as many of the Jews couldn't, that... Uh, it was a spiritual delivery from sin, and not just a political uh, rebellion that was about to take place to deliver the, the Jews from the Roman Empire. And that was hard for the Jews. Much more was hard when, at the end of his life, Christ dies on the cross. Uh, when Deuteronomy is very clear, cursed is anyone hanged on a tree. And of course, Paul elaborates a little bit more on this in Galatians chapter 3, when he explains that even though th that it is true, that it is a shame for one to be hung, hanged on a cross. But Christ took the shame and took the blame in our place. And that's exactly what's taking place there. But that's a glorious thing to us because of what it brings to us salvation. And not just, it doesn't end with shame. So the first reason it was hard for the Jews is because they couldn't understand Christ's ministry, not delivering them politically. If anything, Christians were more persecuted after his ministry. But secondly, to the Jews also belonged the law the prophets, uh, worship regulations. They were the recipients of God's covenant and they loved their religion so much that they missed the point. And that's the problem with every single religion apart from true Christianity. It's all about what we can do and we start feeling good about ourselves because we're accomplishing all these things and that was the problem with the Jews. They became proud in everything that they had and how special they were compared to the other nations and that led them away from the message of the cross. In John chapter 20, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so they may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did many signs, and these signs were rejected by the Jews. In John 1 verse 10 says, uh, verse 10 and 11. The true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. It was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not receive him. Uh, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the Jews, then, see offense on the cross. They don't see the hero that they're expecting, but they, stay, they saw one who failed in the rebellion against the Roman Empire. What about the Greeks, then? The Greeks look for wisdom. They, they love their philosophy. They love their arts. And the problem with the cross is that for the Greek, the cross, as I mentioned earlier, was the worst and most shameful of all deaths you could have. Only a criminal, and the worst of the criminals, would die on the cross and in weakness on the cross that Jesus Christ did. Of all men, of all men on the earth, this could not be the Savior of the world, the one who died on the cross, most likely, well, most likely the naked, uh, as was the custom of the, the Romans. Uh, there is a very famous graffiti. It's actually a, a work that, that we have found many years ago. It was found in Italy, and it's dated to the late 1st century to the 3rd century, and it's called Alexaminus Graffiti. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you have heard, but Alexaminus is the name, it's a Greek name, very common. It's like, you know, if you said Johnny today as, as an American name, so Alexandros is just a Greek name. And the, the, the picture you have in this graffiti is a man hung on a cross, and his head is the head of a donkey. And so, of course, a, a picturing the, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then you have one man looking at that man with the, with the donkey head on the cross, and it says, Alexandros, like Johnny, worships his God. And that was, of course, making fun of Christianity. That was the idea of the Greeks, of what Christianity meant to them. It's, it's a religion of shame. It's a religion where you're worshiping a man who there's nothing to be proud about about his, his life. He was a simple man. He wasn't important. He was born in this little town of Nazareth. And no one knows about him. He lived a simple life. He was the son of a carpenter. And then he was rejected by his own people and died on the cross. And you're telling him that this is the savior of the world. Again, the weakness of God, the wisdom of the world is different than the wisdom of God. Who would imagine that God would plan things that way? And yet, for those who have their lives open, we see all the glory, the beauty even of the humility of Christ coming to the world and living the life to live every single aspect of it in our place. More than that, a man who taught that blessed is the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, all these things were the, the, the opposite of what a Greek or a Roman would consider a good life. Romans were known for their power and their strength. They were conquering the world. They were the most powerful nation in the world. No one could withstand them. And now you come to me and you say, blessed is the meek. Blessed is the one who is poor in spirit and who is merciful, shows mercy to others. The one who hungers and thirsts. We don't hunger and thirst. We conquer we, we make others hunger and thirst and ask us for help. The peacemaker? No, we make war. The one who's persecuted? No, we persecute the weak because we're strong. See, the wisdom of the world is the opposite of the wisdom of God. And if you think that this is just something that belongs to the first century, this is the same society we live in today. Who is the strong today? Who is the successful? Is the one who has money and the one who has cars and, and the perfect family. And we have so many things that we can get attached to where, to God, wisdom is in humbling ourselves before the cross of Jesus Christ and acknowledge that we're nothing.
apart from Him. But what do you see? If this is what the Greeks and the Romans saw at the cross. And again, there's so many parallels for our society today. Yeah, you have taken your own cross. Like the Jews who looked at the cross and they didn't want a Savior who was uh, who, who died. He wanted the one who was triumphant. That's the religion people like today. Is the Jesus who gives you everything and who conquers everything for you. But the idea of repentance, of denying your sins, of coming and, and picking up your own cross and following Jesus. True Christianity that comes with repentance and change of life. That's not the Christianity we like to preach. Christianity that preaches hell for those who go against the will of God. No, that's not what we like today. And it wasn't any different in the first century. The cross is offensive to the unbeliever. But what do we see? What do you see when you look at the cross? Well, there's so much we could talk about the cross. In one sense, every single sermon, every Sunday, every part of the Bible is something about the cross. It's, it's pointing us back to the wisdom of God and putting all things together in the person of Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross. But what I'd like to do this morning is go to the Old Testament and look at something that points us to the cross in the New Testament. Hopefully it will be insightful to you. So if you turn your Bible to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, it may seem at first that this is completely disconnected to, to what we're talking about this morning, but hopefully I'll be able to show you that there's a very clear connection, and it comes from Jesus himself who makes that connection in the New Testament. So Numbers chapter 21, I'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is a really interesting passage. And when you go to the New Testament, Christ himself, uh, Christ himself makes a connection with this, and he says in John 3, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this used to be a very complicated passage for me. Why is Jesus here comparing himself to a snake? If anything, if the Jews, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's one thing you know is that the snake is the symbol of Satan. It's a terrible image. It's, it symbolizes sin and death and all the evil that we know. Why is Jesus saying that in the same manner that the snake was lifted up, now he's being lifted up? Well, uh, I'll do something here this morning that it's not really usual of me to do it, but I'll quote a psychiatrist who is an unbeliever who gave me a lot of insight in this passage. His name is Carl Young. 
and he lectured several times. Uh, he was a famous psychiatrist in the 80s lectured several times in Oxford. Uh, and he did a lot of studies, studies in the Bible, in the biblical narrative, and he found a lot of principles for his psychiatry and psychology uh, in, in biblical principles. And it's interesting how even a man like that could find uh, so many truths in Scripture. He says here, and, and I want to have the picture in mind, so Moses is dealing with these people. They're in sin. God sent these serpents to bite them because they're rebelling against God. And the solution then that God brings is something that, as C.S. Lewis was said, is something that, this is one of those passages that even for a non-Christian who doesn't believe in spiritual scriptures, you have to take this seriously. Because you may either, it's either crazy or it's true. But it's definitely not something just normal and, 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 and that you would expect someone to pretend and write this story. If, by, if snakes are biting your people, and you come to God and cry, why, cry out, what, what would be the easier way to answer that prayer? Just take the serpents away. God could just destroy all the serpents, take the serpents away, and that will fix the problem, right? But that's not what happens. And that's where, again, it's either crazy or it's true. God says, make, get some bronze, make this a pole, put a snake on top of it, which is their fear, it's their problem, and as they look to the snake, they'll be healed doesn't make any sense. Well, here's a, what Carl Jung says. If there's one doctrine uh, common to all fields of psychotherapy, is that when you're facing fear, you look at what you, you're terrified of, and you will be brave. That's one doctrine that all fields of psychotherapy today would agree, that uh, if, if you fear something, you look at it, you have to stare at it, you have to deal with that fear voluntarily, of and that will help you overcome that fear. The classic therapeutic treatment for terror and the poisoning that terror induces is voluntary exposure. This is what Ariel would say. And lastly, I'll write, uh, read from him. He says, the pattern is, face what you are most afraid of, and you will be free of that fear. And this is something that psychologists have known. And they, and they treat people using these principles. And, and the pattern that, that Young shows is that if God had just delivered them from the snakes and taken them away, those people would still be weak people who just don't have the snakes to bite them anymore. Right? They're still weak. But God does something better than deliver from the snakes. He says, the snakes are still there, but I'm going to give you a solution to the snake as you look at this. And as you face your fear looking at the snake, I'll bring you life. And now you don't have to fear the snake anymore. You can look at it. And you're boldly staring at the snake without fear. You're becoming a better person. Isn't that the life, the, the work of Christ in us? It doesn't just say, because if God has predestined us, why doesn't it just take us straight to heaven? Because there's a purpose for us to be here. We're learning. We're in the middle of the serpents. There's temptation. There are trials. And we could just be delivered from them. And it is better for us to be here and face them staring at the cross every time we fail. Because Christ will forgive us. He will heal us. And as we're being healed day after day, we're becoming better people conform to the image of God. Not just sissified Christians who need Christ to deliver, but Christ is working in us and making us better people as well as we face this life through the trust we have on the cross. And that's an amazing lesson we have here. So now let's bring this to the New Testament. Christ says, in the same way that that snake was lifted up in the Old Testament, now I am being lifted up before the world. And everyone who looks at me will be saved. Young also mentions how there's no more, there's no story more tragic 
than the story of Jesus Christ, than the death of Jesus Christ. In, this, in one sense, and of course I don't think he considers the whole story, I think he stops uh, at the death of Jesus because he probably doesn't believe in the resurrection. But when it comes to the death, he says there's no more tragic story. story. And I want you to picture what you have here. You have a man who is on the cross. So let's start with the fact that this is the most painful death someone who could ever face. There's no worse death, more agonizing death than death on the cross when it comes to physical pain. You are put in that place because you have been betrayed by one of your closest followers. Not only one of them who directly betrayed you, but you have Peter, the one you trust the most, who also denied you three times before you're there. You're alone. You're betrayed. You're alone. All your people have turned against you. You're in that place because the tyrant, Pilate, who had all the authority and, and he knew better, he knew that you're innocent, but he washes his hands, he deals truth, and he lets you go in that direction. Um, more than that, everybody around you, they all know that you're innocent man, and yet, even with the opportunity of releasing this person instead of a real criminal, Barabbas, who would come and actually hurt society and hurt their families, he decides to, they decide to leave Jesus as the one who is uh, going to the cross instead of the Saudi man. You're betrayed by your own nation. Uh, you're young. You have done no wrong. And you know they have done no wrong. And on top of all this, of course, is the fact that uh, everyone is watching. You, you came and everything that you have done your whole life. Think of Jesus' ministry. He came to love his people. He, he, he gave his life for them. He was God himself. And he came to the world in humble form. And he felt in compassion for people time after time. He healed them. He took care of them. He uh, stayed late at night, praying so that his people could flourish. And he did that after, time after time and come to the cross to finally crucify him in that place as they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. That's the worst uh, story that someone could have when it comes to uh, a death and, and pain and suffering. And, of course, who are you in the story? We are all these people who did all this to Christ. Uh, we are Pilate, who so many times uh, deal the truth. We want to live according to God's word, but we do things out of popularity. We, we like to be liked, and so many times we do things out of pressure, because it's more convenient for us to do that than to follow the word of God. Uh, we are Barabbas, the one who deserves death. We are uh, the man trying to crucify him. And we are there, but Christ then takes our place. And in that sense, I want to picture that this is the worst of all the possible snakes you could have. All together. You have loneliness. You have all the fears that any, any of us had faced in the past. You have death itself. It's, it's itself, which is our greatest enemy. Death. And Christ is facing all those things on the cross. But as you look at the cross, what do we see as Christians? It doesn't stop there. But if you continue staring at the cross and see what Christ accomplished there, through all that, you keep looking at it, and you continue reading the narrative, and it's revealed to us the resurrection. And that's the wisdom of God. That's what we see on the cross. We don't stop with his death, where we look at his resurrection. The power of Christ, that death could not hold him, but because of his righteousness, because of who he was, God himself, God-man, death could not hold him, and he's risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit, sent by God the Father, redeems his body and brings him back, and he's restored and now lives forever. And he's preeminent above all things, and he reigns and intercedes for us in heaven. 
And that's true not only for him, but in that he conquered death for us. And that's our future now. And as we live this life, we live by the wisdom of Christ in bringing glory to us as well through his ministry in our hearts, through the Spirit, and through the future resurrection that we we'll wait for as we look for his second coming. So that's the glory of the cross. Foolishness to the world and power to those who believe. Let us trust in him. Let us... Uh, Understand that we are nothing apart from the cross and love our Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us in His cross. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you that we're not here in this life trying to earn salvation in our own ways, but everything that we need was provided for us through your Son. We pray that. We would love him. We pray that you would uh, bless that we would not only look back and understand that we were saved in the past, but understand that the message of the cross changed how we do everything in our lives. As we face our fears and as we uh, repent from our sins, trusting that in him we have the power uh, to overcome all these evils in our lives. We pray that you bless us this morning. We pray that you receive the rest of our service as we sing and as we pray together. And we pray that you give us a blessing because we apply these things to our hearts as well. Christ's name we pray. Amen.